how old is the earth? And how much should that question really matter to Christians? Has there been a consensus throughout church history when it comes to interpreting Genesis 1 and 2? Or is Genesis 1 and 2 just one of those murky passages that the church has never really been able to come to a consensus on? These are all questions that came up recently because of a video that Dr. Gavin Ortland did on his YouTube channel called Truth Unites. Dr. Ortland is a pastor, a scholar, and a YouTuber, and in his video called What Ken Ham Misses About Creation, Dr. Ortland takes issue not so much with what Ken Ham says, but with how he says it. Ken Ham, if you don't know, is the founder of Answers in Genesis, a huge creation ministry. Ken Ham takes a strong stand for biblical creation. And Dr. Ortland says that Ken Ham is wrong to present a young earth creation position as the historic Christian view. Now, recently on Twitter, someone suggested that I respond to Ortland, and from that tweet came this episode. This is Worldview Legacy, the show that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders that their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedekes. I am a Bible teacher and former pastor. I used to defend my faith the completely wrong way, and then God changed my attitude and my approach, and today I serve as the executive director of the Think Institute. And I help regular Christian believers to share and defend their faith in a biblical way with confidence and to pass it on to the younger generation. Today, we're going to answer the question, how important is the age of the earth? And what has been the church's view down throughout history? We're going to get into church history and Bible-based theology in this episode in a way that is going to help you to navigate this question for yourself and for your family. This is not an easy question to tackle, and a lot of believers conclude, well, it just must not be that important. They'll say, well, we can never really know. But in this episode, you're going to see that it is important to be able to answer questions like this, and you're going to see that in the final analysis, it's not really as murky and confusing as you may have been led to believe. Now, Apologeti is a Christian apologist. He's very active on Twitter, and he writes at his website, apologeti.com. He is a brilliant thinker, and he is definitely someone that you need to know about. Ben Kissling runs Macrophage. Macrophage Strategy is his podcast, and he is a skilled apologist in his own right. If you're going to do a response to someone as well-studied and articulate as Dr. Gavin Ortland, you need to have guys on who know their stuff. And Apologeti and Ben Kissling are those guys. So I'm very thrilled that they were able to join me for this episode. If you are interested in what the Bible teaches about the age of the earth, this episode is for you. And if you have young people in your life that you speak with about life's big questions and about theology and science, this episode is for you as well. In this episode, be sure to listen for why old earth creationists mention Augustine a lot and what Augustine really believed about creation. Also, listen for where Augustine went wrong and why he really isn't the best example of someone to follow when it comes to interpreting Genesis 1 and 2. Then listen for what the historic position of the church really was in terms of the age of the earth. 
All right, if you are looking for a community of brothers to help you answer questions like this, to help you grow in your faith, to build your theological knowledge base, to grow in apologetics, and to become better able to lead your family in the Christian worldview and build that legacy, then you need to know about our new learning fellowship. It's called the Hammer and Anvil Society, and I'll tell you more about that at the end of the episode. So keep listening all the way to the end. My name is Matt. My wife and I worship at a Reformed church here in Texas. I run Apologeti.com. Hi, my name is Ben Kissling, a.k.a. Macrophage, and I do a podcast oriented on the intersection of science and theology called Macrophage Strategy. All right. So we are here today to talk about a video that recently popped up, and um, it's on a YouTube channel called Truth Unites. And this is a channel that is hosted by Gavin Ortland. Gavin Ortland, a PhD. Dr. Ortland is a pastor, a scholar, and a YouTuber. And he recently did a video responding to another conversation that was had. So this other conversation was on the Relatable Show with Ali Beth Stuckey who was one of my wife's favorite podcasters. And Allie Beth Stuckey had Ken Ham on from Answers in Genesis to talk about the importance of a literal six-day creationist interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 and really Genesis 1 through 11. Well, uh, Gavin Ortland hopped on his show to address... This will sort of give you a clue as to where Gavin Ortland is coming from. His video is called What Ken Ham Misses About Creation. And if you look at the thumbnail, it's, and I know you have to do this for clickbait, but uh, it's Gavin making this grimacy face like, oh, like he just smelled his his child's dirty diaper. (laughs) And so you kind of get a sense of... um, of what Dr. Ortland thinks about that conversation. And that's what we're gonna dive into today. So in order to, to dissect this, um, the, I really wanted to have both of these guys on because these are two gentlemen that I know think deeply about this sort of thing. They're very knowledgeable. And we've had a conversation before about the, uh, the age of the earth. We did a, a Twitter space that we ended up turning into a podcast episode as well. So, um, what I want to do right now is I want to share the video or at least one quick clip from the Truth Unite show with Dr. Orland explaining what he believes is the main concern about what Ken Ham has to say. Part of my, in fact, I can say my biggest concern is not what Ken Ham argues for, though I disagree with that, but how he argues. To get into it, throughout the interview, Ken Ham lumps together acceptance of an older earth and older universe with atheism and liberalism as expressions of rebellion against God and lumps it all that together with all manner of sins in our culture and so forth. This is the position that he takes throughout his ministry. To take a characteristic quote from one of his pamphlets, you can see how he sets the stakes here with regard to the age of the earth. In a follow-up video, I'll be addressing this phrase, true literal history that he uses here. But in this particular video, there was one comment that he made that I thought I could address. I'm going to share the clip. I won't actually show the video. I don't want to have any copyright issues. Err on the side of caution with that. I'll just show you the audio, and then I'll respond. 
you know, if you think about it, you know, within Christendom, there can be a lot of different positions theologically in regard to baptism, eschatology, speaking in tongues, Sabbath day, and we understand that. And people say, well, that's why you can have lots of different positions in Genesis, but it's not the same thing. The reason we have these different positions of, you know, baptism and so on, when you're talking to people, I say, well, because over here scripture says this, yeah, but here it says this, yeah, but in context it says this here. You're arguing primarily from scripture. And obviously somebody's somebody's wrong, right? Uh, but nonetheless, there can be different positions because people are arguing from Scripture. But as soon as it comes to Genesis, they're all saying, yeah, but because of what the scientists are saying, because of millions of years, because of evolution, they're starting outside of Scripture with man's ideas and then bringing that to Scripture. That unlocks a door. So you hear there, he's explicitly denying that the age of the earth is a matter of theological triage, which is where we rank doctrines like baptism or speaking in tongues. Uh, he's saying it's different. And the rationale is an openness to an older earth is the result of an external influence, not the text of scripture. Whereas those issues, it's Christians arguing on the basis of scripture for their views. That's the claim I want to argue against in this video. And I want to show basically, no, it is the text that is causing Christians to interpret this passage differently. What Dr. Orland seems to be saying here is he takes issue with um, with Ken Ham making this, essentially he, he doesn't want Ken Ham to make such a big deal about his particular interpretation of the creation account. The thesis of Dr. Orland's video seems to be, look, Titans in church history have believed differently. So whereas Ken Ham tries to present the historical view um, or, or the young earth view as the historical position of the church, and whereas Ken Ham tries to associate other views with atheism and materialism, in fact, Church history testifies to a diversity of views, and therefore it's wrong or improper for Ken Ham to associate the young earth view with either church history or solid biblical orthodoxy. Dr. Orland is essentially saying diversity of interpretation is really what's characterized the, the uh, church historical view on this. Um, and so... Of course, the the primary example that Dr. Orland puts forward is Augustine, and Augustine is if you're if you're into these conversations at all, Augustine is always the one that gets brought up. Why is that, guys? Why is Augustine the poster boy for interpreting Genesis differently than Young Earth uh, literal six day? It's because Augustine had a view uh, that instantaneous creation was the way that God created. And because of that view, he interpreted Genesis 1 differently than modern young earth creationists would. Um, so Augustine believed that the six days of creation were some kind of logical progression um, of the order in which God created things. And so... Um, old earthers tend to go to him and say, look, Augustine interpreted this differently than six 24-hour days. And that means that, that we have, as Christians, freedom to interpret Genesis 1 
differently. Um, Augustine is often uh, quoted in another passage where he makes the argument that Christians should not uh, say foolish things about uh, things that we can observe in nature and then apply those uh, beliefs to what the Bible says uh, because he's concerned that uh, Christian, Christians and Christianity will look bad to non-believers uh, if Christians say that the Bible means this and you can just look at nature and see, well, that's not correct, therefore the Bible must be incorrect. And so they bring up that uh, passage a lot. And Ortland does bring up that passage in the second video. Okay, so in this video, uh, in this interview with Ken Ham, what is Ken Ham, how would we summarize his argument? And is Dr. Ortland accurate in the way that he summarizes it? So the main thing Ken Ham said is that um, virtually all Christians prior to 1800 uh, were young earthers, meaning they believed in a young earth. And that statement is correct. And Gavin Ortland said that this is not true. Um, and the problem here is that Ken Ham is just correct and Ortland is incorrect. Um, but Ortland wants to apply uh, he, he doesn't want to talk about the age of the earth issue because there are no zero examples of ancient Christians who believed in an old earth. Um, every single quote you may have seen is taken out of context. I've seen a lot of them. Um, they're always out of context. They're always misinterpreted. I have not seen a single example of an ancient Christian who believed in an old earth. So Ham is correct. They were all young earthers. Now, what Ortland wants to say is that because Augustine and several others like Oregon, and he mentioned several others, had different views of the length of the days of creation in Genesis 1, that means they were not young earthers. That means they were old earthers like his modern position. Um, and I think that's a distortion of the truth uh, because the young earth argument is mostly from Genesis 5 and 11. It's not even about Genesis 1. Um, to make Genesis 1 about uh, the age of the earth, you have to be inserting lots of time somewhere in the first five days of creation before the creation of man. And um, none of the ancient Christians actually did that. So none of these ancient views are actually um, supportive of modern old earth views. They all believe that the earth was young, um, so in Augustine's case, he had an instantaneous creation view, uh, which I argue I think is coming from outside the Bible. Um, but they, they use these types of passages to say that it's okay and even normal for Christians to interpret Genesis 1 differently. Um, but the problem is it doesn't support uh, the old earth view. Isn't Dr. Ortland just saying that there were diverse views throughout history and therefore Maybe they weren't old earth views, but it does point up the difficulty of interpreting Genesis 1 and 2. If these great giants of church history, these masters of biblical interpretation, who, by the way, were situated in time a lot closer to the original authors, if they had such difficulty interpreting Genesis 1 and 2, how 
hubristic or how prideful would it be? And, and I'm putting words in Ortland's mouth here. I'm not trying to say that he said this, but isn't it inappropriate of us to therefore think that our one interpretation is the interpretation, given the difficulty that men like Augustine had in, in history? What would, you, what would you respond to that? I would respond that we can tell the reasons why they interpreted Genesis the way they did, and they're coming from outside the Bible, um, which is the main issue here is um, eisegesis. Um, the argument against the Old Earth interpretation of the Bible today is that you're, you're bringing information from science that is outside the text and outside of what the original authors knew and using it to interpret their words. And that's improper interpretation. Uh, it's improper hermeneutics. Even if it wasn't the Bible, it would be improper hermeneutics. Um, you want to interpret an ancient text according to what the authors actually would have understood the text to mean. Um, the problem with a lot of the ancient Christians like Augustine and how they interpreted Genesis 1 is they're doing the same thing. Uh, they're bringing in information from outside the biblical text and using it to interpret Genesis 1 differently. The interesting thing is that the lens that they're bringing to interpret the text is different than the modern lens. Um, and so that's how you point this out. So Augustine's uh, had a couple of different lenses, and one of them was he believed in instantaneous creation for philosophical reasons, the main reason being um, that um, because of his Aristotelian metaphysics, uh, God's nature is to be omnipotent, and you cannot go against your nature. Even God cannot go against your nature, what you are, what your character is. So, for example, it's God's nature to be morally perfect. That means he cannot sin, right? It's God's nature to be omnipotent, and therefore he cannot act uh, in a way that is not fully exemplifying his omnipotence. And so for Augustine, that meant that he must uh, have created instantaneously because that, to Augustine, is the fullest extent of uh, how an omnipotent creator would create. Hmm. Okay? So he goes to the Bible and he tries to find support for instantaneous creation that is really tenuous. And it's because he's trying to read a philosophical claim into the words of scripture. Um, and there's another way he does that too with uh, geocentrism or the Ptolemaic model. Before we jump um, into that really quick, Ben, uh, Matt, what do you, do you agree with that take? Do you think that that's agree what's with going on here? That Kim Ham says, but Kim Ham rightly brings up this important point that What's at stake is the authority of Scripture. And using the same type of hermeneutics that many of the modern old earthers use when they say, the science says, and, and Ortland says this in his second video about how when these scientists, our modern paradigm, says something about their observations of evidence, then we have to try to make that fit into Scripture. And in using those the same type of hermeneutical interpretations, the modern old earthers, or other people can use a different 
authority in our modern times like culture or politics or feelings and elevate those as authoritative in scripture and they'll try to bring that into scripture and we get all kinds of progressive christianity and i'm not saying that Portland is doing this i'm just saying that with the same level of uh the way he's interpreting scripture of taking what's outside of scripture and putting it into scripture as an authority other people can use that same argument to say well i like what the culture is saying about love or other social issues and, and elevate those as authoritative into scripture. So Ken Hammond rightly says we must start with scripture and build our worldview based on what that says. And I think uh, what Ben was saying about Augustine taking those outside authorities, which the Ptolemaic models of geocentrism was not a Christian worldview. That was the dominant paradigm of his time. So the dominant paradigm being the Ptolemaic model influenced how Augustine saw the text. And in the same way, uh, what were we saying about, oh, the instantaneous creation was that was uh, influenced by the Greek thinkers. So they would see the outside world. And where can I look in scripture to try to find something that agrees with the dominant paradigm? So in today's world, the dominant paradigm is old earth and uh, deep time, evolutionary. And so people now will say, well, the dominant paradigm says this. How can I look in scripture to find things that would agree with the dominant paradigm so we can make this uh, somehow cohesive? Uh, so, yeah, I do very much agree with what Ben is saying about this. And I want to hear more about uh, Augustine. He's got a couple more points that were, I think, really important. Yeah, let's talk about that, because I, to me, it's fascinating to think that this very same thing was going on in Augustine's time. Augustine lived in, and I know I'm pronoun- I'm switching back. I always pronounce it Augustine, um, but I switch back in um, from one pronunciation to the other when I remember that I'm supposed to sound more scholarly. So then I'll say Augustine, but then I'll switch back to Augustine because that's just in my mind. That's how I read it. Um, but to me, it's very fascinating to think that Augustine could have been doing the very same thing that many Bible interpreters do today when they're tackling Genesis 1 and 2, which is importing extra biblical sources. And you think about Augustine, you think, man, this guy was an absolute titan. He was a giant in church history. Catholics revere him. Calvinists revere him. He, this guy was the guy. How could he be importing extra biblical sources? Ptolemaic view. What are you talking about? He was the consummate biblicist. And then you look into what he actually believed and you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. What else is going on here? Could it be that he had different biases, but he had biases nonetheless. And in, in that regard, he was very human. He was not the God man. There is only one God man and it's not Augustine. So, uh, Ben, you were about to jump onto something here where you were going to talk about um, Augustine's geocentrism. What is that? How did that affect him? How do you know that he believed in this? Talk about that, would you? Um, well, Western civilization has started out looking at the stars from the perspective of Earth. And so they always assumed that the Earth is stationary and they cataloged the motions of the stars and the planets from the perspective of a stationary Earth. It's really understandable why you would start out that way, um, because we 
feel ourselves to be stationary, right? There's nothing really wrong with that. Um, the Ptolemaic model was an advancement in geocentrism in the second century AD, and it be became widely accepted. Virtually every educated person was well-versed in the Ptolemaic model, and it held sway all the way up until the scientific revolution, so into the 1600s. Okay, so 1400 years, the Ptolemaic model was a dominant model of our solar system and how the planets moved and everything else. It's very different from how we think today. It's not just about the Earth is at the center. They had different ideas about why the planets moved. Um, um, so when uh, ancient Christians looked at Genesis 1, the, the big issue with geocentrism is that the way that you measure the length of a day, if you're a geocentrist, is different than if you're a heliocentrist. How so? so Today, we, we look at the rotation of the Earth. Um, so the sun we hold fixed in our model and say the sun is stationary, and the Earth rotates at a certain speed. And one full rotation is 24 hours. That's how we measure the length of a day. Uh, on geocentrism, the Earth was stationary and at the center. And they were still counting days the same sort of way we do by measuring, by by understanding the relation between the earth and the sun, but because they thought that the sun was the one that was moving, right? So the sun is literally revolving around the earth in a big circle. And when it comes back, to, so if you start at high noon and then you go to the next day where it's high noon again, that's 24 hours. So when they looked at Genesis one and saw that the sun is not created until day four, that's a problem for a geocentric interpretation of Genesis one because it means there's no physical basis for the length of a day until day four. And that's the problem that Augustine had and some several other ancient Christians had. Um, and so what Augustine's solution to this problem is, is he thinks that time wasn't created until day four because there wasn't any physical basis for time passing until day four. And so he thinks that the first three days of creation are sort of a logical progression rather than a temporal progression. And this fits in with his view of instantaneous creation, right? And so the rest of the creation mm -hmm. was also logical rather than temporal. Um, but prior to day four, and that means logically prior to day four, everything that was created then was timeless. Okay, so it was like outside of time. And he puts the angels on day one. He thinks that when God says, and there was light, he thinks that might be a sort of euphemism for creating the angels. Okay. And all this is because of he's reading the text through a geocentric lens, and he can't imagine how there could be a day that's 24 hours the same as our day prior to the creation of the sun. Because if the sun's not there, how do you measure the length of a day, right? You hear the same thing today. You hear people say, how could there be light without the sun? And it's, it's almost a different form of that same argument. In fact, people will mock the creation week because, well, there was light, but there was no, there were no luminaries. There was no sun, moon, stars. And I don't know, to me, that argument seems so facile because it's like, well, you know that light can exist without the sun, right? The sun is not the source of all light. Like, you know that. So what is this argument? It's sort of like, it's sort of like, hey, I don't believe this, but maybe you do, uh, dumb creationist. 
Um, I don't believe that light needs the sun to exist, but maybe you do. So let me try that argument and see if that'll work on you. You know, you know, Joel, if we read uh, the Bible as a chiasm with the beginning having a similar ending in Revelation, we can look at Revelation 22, uh, verse 3, where it says, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb of the and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and there will be no more night. They will they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So oh. there won't there was no there's no sun, moon, and stars at the end of time in the same way that there was no sun, moon, and stars, but there is light at both. So God provides the light in the beginning before he created the sun, moon, and stars, and he'll provide the light at the end when there's no need for the sun, moon, and stars either. You know, that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up too, Apollo Jedi, because in James B. Jordan's book, Creation in Six Days, which I just listened to the audio version of it, he talks about there's a clue in Genesis 1, which may indicate where the light was coming from. And it says that the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. And if the, when you see the way that the Lord is depicted in scripture, dwelling in inapproachable light um, or unapproachable light, God is described as being glorious, bright. And I know a lot of that is metaphorical, but light itself is, is associated with God. And so if the spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep, that very well could be the light source. There was light emanating from the spirit of God. And, um, and then if you factor in the, what, the passage you just read in revelation, it almost seems like John might, John, the, the, uh, apostle John, the revelator might be making that exact point. Like the light that emanates from God is sufficient to illuminate the planet, to illuminate, um, you know, the, the cosmos. I don't know. What do you, you think there's anything to that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, in the book of John, true. you look at John. Sorry, Ben, go ahead. Everybody, everybody at once. <laughs> um, if well, that's I was true, that... the John ties his apostle directly to Genesis one, where he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. And he talks about uh, God, the, the logos, being the light, the light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty strong connection. Ben, what were you going to say? Um, from a scientific perspective, um, all that you need for the length of a day is the earth, rotating at the same speed it does today and a fixed mm -hmm. light source that's outside at some point away from the earth. Mm -hmm. And all of that is there on day one. We hear, we, we know that the earth was already there in, in verse two, it says the earth was formless and void. And God says, let there be light. And then you have evening and morning on day one. So right from the beginning, you have everything you need for a full, normal 24 hour day. Mm -hmm. Why couldn't, why couldn't the day, the first day, the second day, before the sun was created, why couldn't the day just be a chronological 24-hour period in which 
there was no son and uh, and and no um, you know why couldn't it just be like like if you were watching your clock 24 hours would have gone by why couldn't it be that it could be that and in fact that was actually the solution that was preferred by another ancient Christian named Basil of Saint of Caesarea um, Basil writing prior to Augustine noticed this same problem uh, that you don't have a physical basis of a day prior to day four because everyone was a geocentrist back then, right? But right. Basil's solution was God is using, it was a biblical solution. God is using the six days to model the week for us, as it says mm -hmm. in the commandments. And so Basil says, look, God foreknew what he was going to do this uh, use this as an example. So he just made the first week be the right length of a week, of a week even without uh, the physical basis for a 24-hour day. Okay, so I, I hear that, and I'm going to actually argue against my own question here because um, I, I do think that God could have done that. But I, I will say that the text does say that there was evening and there was morning. So that, to me does indicate that there was a light source because now you're getting pretty specific. It's not just saying, and the full measure of time passed and there was the first day. It does specify evening and morning. Those words do mean something. They indicate the waning of light, the waxing of light. And so I'm going to, I'm going to say most likely there was a light source. Clearly it wasn't the sun, but if it was the spirit of God or if it was just photons, a collection of photons, um, you know, emanating towards planet Earth. Uh, I'm good with either one of those. Although this discussion has been framed as if it's a problem for young Earth creation, it's really a problem for the old Earthers. For us as young Earthers, as Ben brings up, the only thing a young Earther, a, someone who reads the Bible contextually, is that the Earth spins, rotates on its axis and the sun, moon, and stars are actually the timekeepers, as it says in uh, Genesis one fourteen. You shall you shall see the sun, and it will be uh, let it be used for signs and seasons and days. So it's like the clock. The sun is the reference point for us going forward. But for the old earther, if the sun, moon, and stars aren't created until day four, they have to somehow account for billions and billions of years without the sun and Earth system in place for deciding what a year is. Well, what is a year if the sun and the earth have not been in their, uh, in their path? They have to come up with some sort of calibration for billions of these non-existent time pieces that we now call a year. Would they still view the creation week as chronological though? Because, you know, you sometimes hear someone who wants to argue against the young earth position. They'll say, how could you have plants without the sun? And, I like to snarkily re reply, I'll say, did you know that there are plants that can survive up to 24 hours without sunlight? Did you know that? And it's like, yeah, of course, all plants can survive an evening and a morning without the sun. That being said, there was a light source at some point anyway. But, um, but for the old earther, you're exactly right. Now we're talking millions or even billions of years where there were plants. If they view Genesis, the creation week as chronological, then you've got millions of years where plants are there without the sun. It would seem like they have to take a different view where it's more, um, uh, 
you know, where, where just the chronology is not there. Like, like somehow these plants were getting sunlight or else the plants were created later. What do they, what do they do with that? And I don't want to get too far afield here from the video that we're addressing, but do you guys know how they address that? Do they view that the creation week is chronological or do they take more of a framework approach or something else? Hugh Ross takes the view that the sun and the moon and the stars were all formed naturalistically over time the way that uh, other secular uh, astronomers or cosmologists view uh, that they, okay. they emerged through gas clouds and coalesced and somehow uh, ignited into stars over billions of years and that the Earth was much, much later in time. So uh, Hugh Ross takes that view that there was a uh, cloud cover that kept anything on Earth from being able to see clearly into the heavens. So the sun was able to keep plants and proto-humans and all these previous, uh, the evolutionary view, even though Hugh Ross isn't technically a biological evolutionist, that uh, it wasn't until day f the, the, the framework of day four that the skies cleared and humans or humans weren't there yet. Other animals could see clearly into the heavens uh, and see. So he, he, he takes a view that's definitely not literally the way that the people of God would have understood this, that mm. there was something that blocked the view of the heavens until the fourth epoch or fourth day, as he likes to say. Uh, I don't know if, uh, Ben, you want to add into that a little bit more? Really, really quick, though, just a point of clarification. Hugh Ross is the founder of Reasons to Believe, which is an organization that puts forward an old earth creationist view. Now, our our listener may or may not be familiar with that view, but it essentially says it's not it's not a Darwinian view. It does uh, posit that the different kinds of creatures were created specially by God and in that sense, it is a creationist view, but instead of taking a literal six-day creation view, it views the days more as ages, and so it's going to interpret the fossil record as very, very different, uh, rather than being laid down by a, a instant a cataclysmic global flood, it does tend to view the fossil record as being laid down over millions of years. So it's, it's sort of a, I'm not going to say it's a midpoint position between young earth creationism and Darwinian evolutionism, but it's definitely different than the other two. And that's Hugh Ross. So when Apologetai is mentioning Hugh Ross, if you're not familiar with who that is, you can look up uh, Reasons to Believe, check out some of his work, and um, sort of get a sense of where he's coming from. But just a little context there. So let's go back to Dr. Ortland. In the time we have left, he says it's not really, his concern is not really with what, Ken Ham said. I don't think that he has a problem with Ken Ham being a literal six-day young earth creationist. His problem, Dr. Ortland's problem, seems to be that Ken Ham makes this such a test of orthodoxy that he associates non-young earth positions with secularism, materialism, and atheism. And that, I believe, is what Dr. Ortland takes so much issue with what do we think about that? Is is that a fair concern that he would be concerned about Dr. Ham, uh, Ken Ham, not Dr. Ham, 
Ken Ham making Young Earth Creationism such a test of orthodoxy or such a um, setting it up as such a bulwark against liberalism and atheism. Is that a valid concern? I don't think so, because I think that Ken Ham has never made that explicit connection, not that I've seen. Um, the things that Ken Ham has said are in that quote that you gave at the beginning. Um, he thinks it undermines scriptural authority. He thinks an old earth view um, makes it hard to remain consistent as a Christian thinker. Um, and he thinks it undermines uh, things like the biblical view of morality and salvation. Um, now, a funny thing about Ortland uh, is that in his first video, he used a phrase uh, that I think misrepresents Ham's view pretty significantly. He said that he thinks Ken Ham has made young earth creationism a, quote, litmus test for a faithful Christian. Now, uh, when I criticized him for that on my first response video, Ortland came onto my YouTube uh, channel and commented, and he changed the statement. Uh, he changed it to a litmus test for a faithful reading of scripture, uh, which is a lot less harsh than saying a faithful a litmus test for being a faithful Christian. Okay. And in his second video, Ortland uses this revised phrase. So even Ortland, I think, understood after being criticized that he was exaggerating what Ken Ham was saying. And um, I don't particularly um, like some of the tone that Ken Ham takes with other old earth Christians. Um, and I've criticized him publicly on that before. But I find myself increasingly defending Ken Ham because he keeps getting accused of saying things that he never said. Uh, and so, you know, I just want to look at what he said. And generally what Ken Ham says are things that I agree with. Yes, it's important. Uh, a young earth view, if, if you take it consistently, supports all of traditional Christian orthodoxy. Um, but if you take an old earth view and you think about it too much, uh, you start to realize that it's inconsistent with a, a proper hermeneutic of the Bible, and therefore it begins to undermine scriptural authority. Uh, and there are several consequences for theology down the line um, that become very important. Um, and I think that this historically has led to a gradual, slow undermining of Christianity in the West. Uh, and I hmm. think I think that's Ham's view, and it's a nuanced view, and I think it's correct. But he's not saying that if you're an old earther, you're not a faithful Christian, or you're not trying to read the Bible faithfully. Um, and I don't think he makes it a litmus test for being a Christian. It's probably a litmus test for being a, an employee of Answers in Genesis, but hmm. that's not like that's totally okay, right? That's just an yeah, organization. Right. right. Um, right. I, I just think Ken Ham is interpreted interpreted uncharitably by a lot of old Earth Christians, and hmm. um, I don't like that. Do you have any concerns, Ben, about Ken Ham and the way that he presents his arguments and and um, the way he argues for young earth creationism? It sounds like you do. What what would be those concerns? 
Um, I think sometimes his sometimes his tone is a little combative, um, but you know. I could say the same about myself sometimes. I, I was going to say, you, you can be combative as well sometimes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's, In yeah, fact, so... I'm probably worse than Ken Ham on that, honestly. Um, Interesting. But uh, one one other thing that's probably not related to Ortland is there's a, a group of young earth creationists that Answers in Genesis has gone after recently. Um, and I think and, and something that I think was a little bit an unfair way. Uh, AIG put out a series of articles criticizing um, uh, Todd Wood, and I think Kurt Wise was included in this. I, in, in my own mind, I call them the Wise Wood group because they are a, a sort of a different community within Young Earth creationism. But AIG kind of called them Young Earth evolutionists, which I think was unfair. Um, so. When Ken Ham goes wrong and when AIG goes wrong, I think it's mostly motivated by um, uh, trying to support their own organization, Answers in Genesis. One thing that Ken Ham does really well is fundraise. And I've been to a Ken Ham fundraiser. He's really good at it. Me too. <laughs> um, yeah. What he's not so good at is um, representing the Young Earth view to a hostile audience. Hmm. So to do uh, that, Matt, go ahead. I was just going to ask, uh, please finish up and uh, continue your thought. To represent young earth creationism to a hostile audience or really any view to a hostile audience, you have to really understand the other person's point of view and why they think what they do. Hmm. Um, and I think Ken Ham really is used to talking to people who already are young earthers. And so he doesn't quite know how to talk to people of different views. Matt, do you share that concern, criticism? A little bit. I was going to say some positive things about Ken Ham. Uh, Let's go. I, as an apologist, many, many years ago, as someone who's an evidentialist, and how the evolution or the, uh, the evidence supports the creation model, the young earth creation model, because the evidence is so strong for young earth creationism, I tried to argue from that. But as I've grown as an apologist, what I'm finding more and more is that everybody interprets evidence according to their worldview. And what we need to do as Christian apologists is stand firm on the word of God. That is our ultimate authority. The revelation of God, the revelation from the one who knows everything and is eternally faithful does not lie about his revelation. And we, we see the revelation in his word, we see the revelation in creation, and we see the revelation through Jesus and the incarnation. And all those are going to be in agreement. So, uh, but as a, I have seen Ken Ham evolve as an apologist from simply being just an evidentialist to also taking this understanding of uh, a presuppositionalist. We have a presupposition that God's word is true. And from that, we build our apologetic and see that, yes, we would expect the evidence to support a creation model, not because that is the primary source, but because God's word is the primary source. We stand on God's word as the ultimate authority, and we build out from that. God's revelation is first. And while we can argue about dinosaur bones with an evolutionist, because they see dinosaur bones as millions and millions of years old, we see dinosaur bones as being buried in the flood. So we look at, we see the same evidence. 
Everybody has the same evidence. Everybody has access to the same evidence. How do we come to the evidence? What is our lens through which we see the evidence that's been presented? And I think Ken Ham has done a great job of evolving as an apologist to see that we have to stand on God's word first. And while he may not have the best public speaking, very much like myself, I'm not the most polished public speaker. Uh, I see there are many Christian apologists who can lay these out in a, in a much more logical way that are very persuasive. Uh, and so Ken Ham may not be the best at that, but he has definitely grown as an apologist, I think, in standing firm on God's word and building outward from that. Yeah, that's good. I, I see the same. I do sometimes take issue, and I, it's hard for me to put my finger on where my criticism would go. It's probably just a different approach. I mean, Ken, Ken Ham deals with a lot of criticism, and that criticism comes from both within and outside the church. The way I view his approach and where I see it coming from is just he's had to become so stinking based because he is constantly being attacked that a lot of the nuance and winsomeness that you might expect someone who is trying to hold out an olive branch, there's a good flood reference for you, to the other side, you might expect them to have this this sort of winsomeness and this sort of, hey, can we all get along? It's something that I try to have in my own apologetics. But Ken Ham has been so blasted, it's almost like any of any of the soft layers, and I don't know what he was like in the past. Maybe he was even more uh, 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 abrasive isn't the right word, but you get what I'm saying. But I think he's had just layers blasted off of him, pressure washed off of his attitude by um, by the opposition that he's faced. And so today, it's just the raw opposition. It's like, look, this is what the Bible says. If If you want to faithfully interpret scripture, this is what it says. And I'm, and I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm not going to try and win you over with sweet, soft, gentle words. This is just what it says. And for him, I do think that he's wired that way and it's very successful for him. You look at the success of the Ark Encounter, you look at the Creation Museum. Why are so many thousands of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of believers flocking to those attractions. It's because they know that Ken Ham, whatever you may think of how he approaches things, he's going to be honest with you about what he believes and what he thinks the Bible teaches. And he's going to present that as unvarnished fact. And I know I and my family, we are very much craving that. We appreciate that. That's why we went to the Ark Encounter, because it's like, look, I, I may not agree with 100% of everything Ken Ham says, but I know that he's not going to try and, you know, he's not blowing smoke at me here. I'm going to get, I'm going to get what he believes is the real truth. And um, that's very, very refreshing. So all that to say, the very thing that I might criticize Ken Ham for, you know, his tone, his lack of winsomeness, that's actually the very thing that I appreciate about him because I don't have to guess where Ken Ham is coming from. Where, you know, with other uh, Christian apologists, I might not know. Like, okay, what, what do you actually believe and why do you believe it? What's the evidence for your view from Scripture? You know, what's the support that you have uh, from Scripture? And so, yeah, I actually appreciate that. It's, it's, a, it's a two-edged sword, I think. But it's something that I would, I would critique and appreciate uh, both about Ken Ham. And let's, let's, let's go here, if we could. 
Let's say Dr. Ortland were to jump on this call right now. He's not going to because it's closed, but let's say he did. What would you want to say to him right now? Because he may watch this video. What would you want to say to him? Start with, uh, start with you, Ben. What would you say? I would just start going through all the references I've compiled of ancient Christian texts that are clearly supportive of the young earth view. And there's a lot of them um, going way back to the starting with the second century. Um, someone pointed out to me recently that the Hebrew calendar this year is 5,783 from creation. Um, so this is Jewish <laughs> as well. Yeah. Right. There is no old earth view prior to about 1700, uh, not in the modern sense. And there's no Christians who believed in an old earth prior to that at all. There's no evidence at all. And I say this as having argued with old earthers on this point for a long time. Okay. They always say this, that there are old earth views that go back before modern science right? Because they want to justify their position. Um, but I have never found a single claim to be an accurate interpretation of what they believed. Uh, and that's including looking into the flat earth stuff, right? There are a small number of ancient Christians who argued for a flat earth. I've found a couple references. I found a reference to a debate over the shape of the earth. But by and large, that's a myth, right? The vast majority of Christians uh, throughout Western history have believed the earth was a sphere. And that's a key part of the Ptolemaic model that we talked about earlier is that the earth is mm -hmm. a sphere. Okay, But there were a few dissenters that we've, you can find a few oddballs here and there. The weird thing about the age of the earth issue is that I haven't found any oddballs that took an old earth view. Not a single one who's a Christian. Because the Bible is so clear on this, um, not, not a single Christian. And so there's a quote from Oregon. And Oregon was far and away, I think, the most, quote unquote, liberal interpreter of the Bible in the ancient world. Um, he went so far as to say that up through Genesis 3 is an allegory or a fable that didn't actually happen, right? Um, most of these other arguments are about Genesis 1 only. Uh, but Oregon goes all the way up to, to chapter 3. But even Oregon, when he is arguing against the pagan view, that usually the pagan view was that uh, the physical universe is eternal, um, or they had other maybe older views. When Oregon argues against Celsus, a pagan, uh, he says something to the effect of, the only reason he is arguing against the Mosaic account that the earth is less than 10,000 years old is the, that's the number he used. The only reason anyone would do that is to undermine the authority of scripture and to attack the Christian faith, which tells me that even Oregon did, knew of no Christians who were taking an old earth view because he thought the only reason anyone would do this is you're attacking Christianity. And that's wow. more extreme than in Ham, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, yes, it is. Apologetic, what would you say to Dr. Ortland if you were here? So a couple of things I would want to say to Dr. Ortland. First, from his first video, this is a quote that he said, 
Uh, Augustine couldn't have known about modern discoveries, so that's why he held to a young earth. This is a not-so-subtle reference to how Ortland sees the modern paradigm as his authority, in the same way that, because he pushes it back on Augustine, saying, well, Augustine couldn't have known what we know now. It's chronological snobbery. The, the internet is doing funny things. Can you can you rewind like 20 seconds and say what you just said over again, please? Sure. If you can remember. Well, I would want to say to Dr. Ortland a couple of things. First of all, uh, a quote that Dr. Ortland says in his first video, Augustine couldn't have known about modern discoveries, so that's why he held to a young earth. It's his not-so-subtle way of saying that the modern paradigm of what we know today is right and He's forcing that back on Augustine to say Augustine couldn't have known about the, the modern paradigm that we have today. He's elevating what is seen as the modern paradigm as the authority rather than scripture. So when Portland says that, he's, he's very clearly saying it's a, it's a chronological snobbery to say that or, uh, Augustine couldn't have known what we know now about the, the, the modern paradigm, what it says. And so in the same way that uh, someone would say, well, the, the first few chapters in Genesis can't be true because the modern paradigm says this. Someone could take that same argument and say, well, the resurrection couldn't have happened because the modern paradigm says that people don't rise from the dead. You see how the, if they use the modern paradigm as their authority, someone could just as easily make that same argument and use it against the resurrection, use it against walking on water, use it against, against the virgin birth as they do against a young earth model. Even though let me, they won't let me say push that. back on that, though. They're so, being inconsistent uh, in the way they interpret Scripture is, what, is my point. Okay, apologetic. Let me push back on that because that I'm, I'm not, I don't see those as being in the same category. Here's why. So it's to deny that the resurrection can happen is just a purely anti-supernatural presupposition. Dead men don't rise, period. It doesn't matter what the evidence says. I refuse to examine the evidence. Dead men don't rise. Jesus Christ could not have risen from the dead. Jesus Christ could not have been born from a virgin, period, because that's just not how things work. I don't care what the eyewitness testimony says. I don't care about the evidence. My presupposition is that is that supernatural things don't happen, period. That's the end of the story. Someone could say, ah, but that's not what I'm saying when it comes to Genesis. When it comes to Genesis, I, I do believe in evidence. I am examining the fossil record. I am examining the rock layers. I am examining the, um, you know, carbon-14 dating and, and um, radiometric dating. I am examining all these things. And it's because of the evidence that I have to reinterpret Scripture. So I, I see those as being two separate things. At least I, I could see a case being made for that. I don't think it's as simple as just saying, well, the modern paradigm says this. Therefore, we know the scripture can't be correct. What would you say to someone who says, no, 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 it's because of the evidence that I do believe in the resurrection. You know, someone like an evidentialist would say that. And it's because of the evidence that I believe in more of an older. Well, for them to say that there's fossils at all uh, would mean that they're ignoring the global flood. The global flood is the mechanism that creates all the things that we see today, the perfectly sorted sedimentary rock layers that bend and fold when they were still wet. 
the polystratal fossils, uh, no bioturbation within the fossil layers. There's all sorts of reasons that if you want to truly investigate the evidence, the global flood explains all of that. So, in a, in a way, they're taking the modern paradigm that you've all heard it. There was no global flood. They say it over and over. There's no global flood. Uh, so they're taking that, understand that assumption and applying it back to scripture saying, well, it must have been a tiny local flood over the Black Sea in the ancient Middle East. Uh, so the point is, though, that when someone says such and such couldn't have happened because the science says that can be used in many different forms in an inconsistent manner for old earthers. You know, a second thing I'd want to say, Dr. Ortland, is that I appreciate his is, as a brother, I am not uh, smarter or more righteous or anything like that. So I appreciate the, the name of his website, Truth Unites. We ought to be united around the truth of God's word. And that, I think that's an important point that we're not, uh, we're, no one is saved by the quantity of correct information that one believes. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so I can appreciate that about a brotherly discussion among Christians uh, on this topic. And the last thing I would want to say to Dr. Ortland is uh, all of the reformers, every one of them that wrote on the topic were young earth creationists. They all affirmed the six day creation. It's in the Westminster Confession. It's in the London Baptist Confession. The the two main confessions of today in this book by uh, Dr. Piper and Dr. Hall confirmed that in their research, every reformer who wrote on the topic was a young earth creationist. So check that out. I know there are, uh, what's the title of that book? Bring all the, the church history, all of church history, about a handful of people who in the past were not, uh, holding to the six day creation. Uh, and I think Ben has done a good job of showing that the reason Augustine didn't hold to the biblical view was because of, things that were outside of scripture because of the Ptolemaic paradigm. And yeah. he didn't quite get to it in this video, but uh, I encourage everybody to go watch his response videos to Dr. Orland because there's another key point that was uh, very good to show that Augustine didn't really have a correct understanding of right. uh, what the Bible actually teaches. He had extra biblical sources for his reasoning that he didn't uh, hold to the six day creation in a recent past. What's the title of that book? Did God create in six days? Dr. Piper and Dr. Hall. Fantastic. Good reference there. I have not read that. I, I want to add that to my list. And I'm sure our, our listener will as well. Uh, good. Well, it's okay. So my turn. So if Dr. Orland were here, if you're watching this video, I would want to echo what you said there, Matt, and say, I love the idea that truth unites. I, I, uh, I first chuckled because I saw the name of his channel, which I wasn't familiar with. And it's called Truth Unites, but then it's... The title of the video is about what Ken Ham got wrong. So clearly truth unites, but it, before it can unite, it does have to divide. And I see, uh, it's, it seems like Dr. Ortland believes that truth is always going to be divisive at first because you have to separate truth from error. In fact, the, the, when Paul says we're going to interpret scripture rightly, he says we have to rightly divide the word of truth. We break it up. We we analyze it. We look at different sections. And then scripture is going to act like a double-edged sword that's going to pierce our, our flesh, as it were. It's going to separate bones from marrow. It's going to get into the most deep, intimate parts of our heart and mind, and it's going to separate truth from error. And 
as uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil runs right through the middle of every human heart. And scripture does a great job of dividing good and evil, truth from error. And it has to start internally as we wrestle with truth. Then we, what's in the heart flows out of the mouth, Jesus says. And so then we can espouse what is true. And that's going to conflict with those who are teaching error. So truth is inherently divisive at first. And maybe we'll start a YouTube channel called Truth Divides. Um, but before it can unite, it has to divide. And I do see that impulse in Dr. Ortland's video, and I commend him for that, for seeking truth. I commend him for wanting to approach this in an ironic way, not in a bombastic way. Um, but I would absolutely take issue with some of his conclusions. And, and I think that you, the two of you articulated those differences that I would hold very well. And there, and what I would, what I would also really want to lean in on and press is that if you want to examine the evidence, the evidence is not in favor of, a, of, a, of an old earth. It just is not. The scientific evidence corroborates the biblical testimony that the world was created about 6,000 years ago by God within six days. And much of the fossil record, if not all of the fossil record that we have today is a result of a global cataclysm, which is exactly what the Bible teaches. And the Bible also teaches in Second Peter that man will willingly forget about that cataclysm. And they will do so in order to willingly forget that God is going to judge the world by fire in the future. The best science and the best scientific evidence, I do believe, falls in favor of corroborating the young earth six-day creationist view. I would not say that I'm 100% convinced, but every time I talk about this issue and study it, I get closer to that 100% status. Dr. Orland, if you ever watch this, I would encourage you, without trying to sound condescending, with all due respect to your your position as a scholar and a pastor, I would say keep studying the evidence because it does fall in favor of the clear biblical testimony of young earth. I want to encourage everybody to study God's word. When you have a, a spare minute, read God's word. And when you're done with that, check out Macrophage, check out apologetic.com. I've got a book review of Hugh Ross's seminal work, uh, A Matter of Days. Uh, all 27 chapters uh, are analyzed down to the, the macro, micro detail. If you're interested in seeing more of what Hugh Ross says and why it doesn't seem to fit, why it's inconsistent with God's word. Uh, but most of all, we want to do this to uphold the authority of Scripture, to honor the Lord, and to, as Joel said, divide away those things that are chaff and unite around the authority of God's Word. So thanks again, guys. I appreciate it. Fantastic. All right, and that's macrophage. M-A-C-R-O-P-H-A-G-E. Yes, definitely go check it out. So, now you know. Augustine is cited by old earthers because he interpreted the creation narrative differently from the traditional, literal, six-day view. Augustine believed that creation happened in an instant and that Genesis is giving us sort of a structural organization of creation, not a literal interpretation. However, Augustine did not promote an old earth the way that old earth creationists and creationary evolutionists present today. 
and Augustine went wrong by incorporating extra-biblical theology, ideas from outside scripture, into his theological reasoning. For this reason, Augustine is not the best person to follow as an example. Augustine was brilliant. He was an incredible theologian in many ways. We have lots to learn from him. But he was not right on this. Because we have scripture, the unchanging standard of God's word and the authoritative record of the past, we can say this. and We can judge Augustine and his words by scripture the same way we would any other pastor or theologian the same way that I hope that you do towards me. Finally, the church down through the centuries did not believe in anything like the old earth cosmology put forward by today's proponents of old earth creation, like Hugh Ross and the folks at Reason to Believe, much less those of the evolutionary creation camp. The traditional historical interpretation of the church was a young earth position, much more in line with somebody like Ken Ham and the folks at Answers in Genesis. So if you enjoyed this episode and you found it helpful, you're going to want to hear what I'm about to say next. In today's world, it's not enough to be a Lone Ranger Christian. You need a brotherhood who are going to have your back, hold you accountable, and help you pursue spiritual disciplines, build your knowledge base, and develop a lasting legacy in the Christian worldview. The Hammer and Anvil Society helps regular Christian men go from being inconsistent family spiritual leaders to theological masters, to becoming the worldview leaders that their families and their churches need them to be without having to drop everything, move across the country, and go to seminary. Members enjoy access to the following benefits courses in the Christian worldview, family discipleship, apologetics basics, and answering apologetics challenges, access to the online community and message board, and the complete resource download library. The cost is just $77 a month, and enrollment is now officially open. We're planning to launch our first course, The Christian Worldview, on October 9th. If you are interested in learning more, check out thethink.institute slash society. That's thethink.institute slash society. Thanks for listening to Worldview Legacy. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes, and is a production of The Think Institute. We equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message, and we are based by God's grace.